I mean, uh, L. Kirk Nurmi, everybody, is Jody Arias' def forced defense lawyer. How many times did this guy try to get off the trial? Well, I'm not saying that I wanted off the case because I thought she was guilty. What I'm saying is I wanted off the case because I had a sense of what it would become uh, in terms of the media exposure, in terms of what she was going to do. And I didn't want to be a part of it. I didn't want to do capital okay. work anymore. Got I wanted it. to move into private practice. Got it. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I do remember as I testified to this. I'm sorry. I think I would have testified to this in the 2014 trial. I do remember... I do remember the moment when the knife went into Travis's throat and he was conscious. He was still trying to attack me. It was I who was trying to get away, not Travis, and I finally did. I never wanted it to be that way, Judge. Hello and welcome to Real Crime Profile. This is your host, Jim Clemente, former New York City prosecutor, retired FBI profiler, and Currently writer and producer on CBS's Criminal Minds. And with me today from London is... Laura Richards, former criminal behavioural analyst at New Scotland Yard and founder and director of Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service. And I am Lisa Zambetti. I am the casting director for Criminal Minds, where Jim is my colleague, and I have a real interest in real crime and the minds that solve those crimes. And with us today from Arizona is a very special guest. Morning, Jim. It's Kirk Nurmi, a former defense attorney and current uh, life coach and author. Well, it's great to have you with us, Kirk. Today, we'd like to talk to you about a variety of topics, but probably one of the most infamous cases that you worked, the defense of Jody Arias in the murder of Travis Alexander. 
How long did you work that case? I received that case in 2009. I was working in the capital unit of the public defender's office, and it was essentially assigned to me there after uh, the prior public defense agency had a conflict of interest that prevented them from continuing their representation in this area. So when I got the case, it was a, a little over a year old, so to speak. So what did you know about Jody Arias or the case when you first got called in? When my supervisor first handed me the file, uh, I didn't know a lot. Obviously, one thing that was immediately of note before I really investigated anything about the case was the fact that it was a female. A female defendant in a capital situation is um, exceedingly rare. I'm sure there's statistics somewhere, but I, I, know, I know common sense is enough to bear that out, that most facing the death penalty are men. So that was the immediate d distinction, I guess, of the case right off the bat. From that point, though, at that time, given, like I said, it was about a year old, I was aware of the CBS special that she had done. I forget. I think it was 48 hours um, where she had done an interview. So uh, I immediately went to seek out that video so I could kind of get a sense of who my new client uh, truly was. Can I ask a question, Kirk? Is that quite unusual for someone to do 48 hours or a, a show like that when they're on trial for murder of, of somebody? Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, I guess part of that deals with the fact that maybe the media is only interested in certain cases and only makes so many inquiries. But what was of note, I guess, in this case is that what we found later on is there was interviews. She was arrested in her hometown of Wairika. Interviews took place before she was even extradited to Arizona. So the first interview took place in Wairika when she was in the jail. And then a subsequent interview took place uh, a few months later when she was, after she'd been extradited, was in custody in Maricopa County. I can't imagine that her public defender would have wanted her to do that. I mean, did she do that without counsel or? Well, uh, there's a there's a couple different tacks on that question. Um, the first one is when she was in California, she had counsel, but they that counsel was assigned to deal with the extradition issues. How much experience that person would have with criminal defense work, I have no insight. But what I did know and, and what I wrote about uh, in my book is this idea that I knew the prior attorney. And while I didn't know the conflict that we were talking about, I knew this prior attorney and I knew that she was very experienced in capital litigation and no defense attorney, quite frankly, especially in a capital sense, would advise their client to uh, make more statements on videotape. Um, it was a very interesting development and it only served to fuel the fire, didn't it? I mean, it just made this trial even more of a circus than it that it might have been just because of the fact that it was a woman on trial for a death penalty offense, right? I think so. I think that media attention that got onto it right away before she was even extradited really played a part in, in that growing attention and then the subsequent interviews. You know, just as by way of analogy, there was another case in Maricopa County about the same time of a woman who had killed a man and there it was every bit as lured, if not more so than this Arias' case. But that essentially got no attention. The ball was already rolling down the hill when I got the case. What can you tell us about Jody Arias before this trial? What was she like? What was going on with her relationship with Travis? Well, you know, we saw, I think one of the biggest things, and I'm glad you asked that, Jim, one of the biggest things that I always like to bring up with this case is that this is such a tragedy. We had two young people, a young woman who was struggling to find her way in the world and a beloved young man who was, in essence, doing the same. And we found this this toxic bond, this toxic relationship that neither seemed to be able to break. They seemed to, you know, some you could call it a love-hate relationship, perhaps, because we saw a lot of love expressed and a lot of anger expressed within the relationship. But the word I always tend to use is chaos. And for whatever reason, they just could not find a way to separate from each other. And that's that's what got us to the point of the tragic circumstances of June 4th. 2008. One of the things, as as I recall, uh, when the trial approached and when you were picking juries and everything was really kind of coming to a head was that there was definitely a, a concerted effort on the part of the media to 
to draw an audience. It was almost like advertising for a new TV show coming up. It was obvious that there was going to be a tremendous amount of day-to-day coverage. And I think it, it, I don't know, did it actually even eclipse the O.J. Simpson trial in terms of the coverage? Well, you know, after, after you introduced me on stage at CrimeCon a few months back, that's exactly kind of what I addressed, this idea of the social media effect of all of this. Because as prominent, if you will, as, as the O.J. Simpson case was, the social media was not around. We didn't have Twitter. We didn't have those sort of things. And and by the time that the Arias trial rolled around, we got to a point now where people could watch the trial live on their cell phones. They could sit at the office right. and watch the trial or check in on the trial. So you had the media coverage. You had the social media coverage. And it was it was almost nonstop, Jim. I mean, um, being a local resident of Arizona, too, I mean, I could turn on my TV in the morning and see what was going what had happened the day before and what was going to happen the next day it was there was just a complete uh, saturation of the case from both a media and a social media perspective i noticed another very extremely unusual aspect in a death penalty case was the fact that the defendant took the stand and jody arias was on the stand for was she on 17 or 18 days uh, people tell me 18 days. I wasn't counting at the time. My focus was elsewhere. But the uh, general consensus seems to be 18 days. And, and it is true that uh, I have had major felony cases that begin and end uh, in less than 18 days. But, you know, in a death penalty case, obviously, the, the stakes are the uh, the ultimate price is being asked uh, to be imposed. So um, they do not move at a, a rapid pace. Right. But in this case, the fact that Jody was on the stand for 18 days, uh, to me, that was the most fascinating thing behaviorally. And the fact that we could day in and day out, hour after hour after hour, see her, um, her composure, her, her ability to be sort of hyper vigilant in terms of language and hyper precise. And, and I believe she did an amazing job, not only talking circles around the prosecutor who was cross-examining her, but also pushing all of his buttons and making it very difficult for him to have a, uh, you know, a good flow of his questioning. And I think that may be why it dragged out for so long. What do you think? Well, I mean, that's part of it. Certainly when we talk about these 18 days, you know, I don't know how many of those that I'm responsible for with the direct examination, but getting a jury, you know, we talk about the ultimate goal of capital defense being to spare the client's life. Getting the jury to understand the client is of utmost importance to me. And obviously, uh, Mr. Martinez has a has a different agenda. But I think it was obviously that led, Jim, the kind of discourse between those two led to a lot of extra time because there was there was that constant frustration. There was that constant uh, battle, if you will. Laura, did you get a chance to see any of her testimony at trial? I saw a little bit of it, yes. I mean, I remember the trial at the time, but I just looked back at some of the things that are on YouTube. I mean, she certainly seems well composed, and there were elements when she was questioned about the, the, the voicemails, for example, that were left and her account of what happened, which seemed to change uh, across the years of her saying what happened and how it happened and why it happened. Um, and I think, was it, Kirk, I mean, correct me if I, if I misunderstood this, but was it two years in that she actually, the, the defence around it being domestic violence related, that it was self-defence? Was it two years later that she, that that, that was offered in, in defence? I would say that that is approximately correct. I cannot remember, it being so many years ago now, I cannot remember when I filed my amended notice of defenses uh, to include self-defense, which Arizona rules uh, require us to do. But that was done in probably two years is probably a fair approximation of when I did that. So I did see the parts where Mr. Martinez was asking her specifically about why uh, she left the voicemails. And you know, there were a number of voicemails, I recall, that were left on his phone after the murder. And, and she concedes quite a lot of, of what he says in that, that she is trying to uh, direct police attention elsewhere away from her. 
which I thought was was curious because I've, I have worked quite a lot of domestic violence cases and certainly those where battered women kill and you know they kill because they've been abused over a period of time and this case felt quite different to many others that I've seen not just because of the television aspect but um, the way how composed she was um, the cleaning up the voicemails the things that happen that seem to be quite planned and even in her responses she seems very well put together and composed I don't know if, if you can comment on any of those things in particular. I, I will say this. I'm, I'm obviously, I cannot match my uh, expertise on domestic violence against yours. But what I would say is that three, three separate domestic violence experts believed um, that she was a victim of domestic violence. That is the evidence that was put forward at trial. And did they, may I ask if, if they interviewed her specifically or how did they arrive at those determinations? Just because I didn't see the whole trial, I don't it, recall. Well, yeah, there was, there was uh, testing and interviews. There were each, you know, when a capital defendant is put on trial, a thorough psychological evaluation is done that cover many aspects of just general um, psychological health as well as specific issues related to the case. And both sides have the opportunity to, to uh, put the client or the defendant through those kind of um, testing and those kind of clinical interviews. Right. So from interviews and from her, no doubt, talking about specific events or situations um, in terms of what her account of the relationship was. Well, be, be mindful as well. There was also uh, numerous written communications, text messages, those sort of things um, that were also considered by the experts. But I, I recall uh, from, from your book and just from some of the accounts that you talked about her deeply disturbed behavior. And I, I don't know if you can say anything about that, of, of your interaction in terms of what, what you meant by that, whether you can explain it a little bit. Well, Is that I, in I, terms I of the trial or... Specifically, what you're referring to, I I talk about the disconnect in her behavior um, during our first meeting um, about how it was like chatting at Starbucks as opposed to a person being in jail facing uh, felony uh, murder charges and not well felony murder, first degree murder, and capital murder charges. So um, I talk about that a little bit. I don't recall referring to her behaviors as deeply disturbing or her mental state is deeply disturbing. But I also read from her, from, sorry, Travis's best friend, that there, he claims that she was stalking Travis and that there was a pattern of behavior of her stalking him and that there were tires slashed and her turning up unannounced and that actually it was the other way around. And of course, you know, I can only go on what I've seen and what I've read. And I certainly, you were there and you prepared the file and put the case on her behalf. But it, it seemed to be that there were there are two very different accounts. Uh, one that's hers that where she's saying that she's a victim of domestic violence. And of course, I work with many victims. And then there are others, of course, Travis isn't here to give his account. But there are others who uh, claim that she was the one who wouldn't let the relationship end. You, you said I was the one there preparing the file, but I think it's important to take a step back when we talk about making this assessment and whether it's myself as, as someone who had practiced law for a long time and dealt with domestic violence or you as an expert, we have to, I think you would have to concede that the only people that truly know whether domestic violence happened in that relationship was Mr. Alexander and Miss Arias, they're the only ones that truly know. Friend, I think you would have to concede as well that friends and family don't often know the full extent of the relationship that is happening behind closed doors when there is domestic violence. And the other thing I would say as, uh, while I'm on a personal level no fan of Miss Arias, we have to say that there was also behaviors that were going on between Mr. Alexander and Miss Arias, mainly sexual behaviors, that those people that were vouching for Mr. Alexander also did not know about. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. 
To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's Amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Whether you hydrate to live or live to hydrate, Liquid IV quenches your thirst faster than water alone. With three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, plus eight vitamins and nutrients for everyday wellness, all in a single sugar-free stick. Liquid IV is perfect for daily use before a workout, when you feel run down, after a long night out, or on long flights. Basically, anytime you need a pick-me-up, however you hydrate. Grab your Liquid IV Hydration Multiplier Sugar-Free in bulk, nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code WONDERY at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today, using promo code WONDERY at liquidiv.com. Did you kill Travis Alexander? Yes, I did. He called me a skank. He called me porn star. you. I wanted to cover you up because... That's you, all of you. Some of our Facebook um, listeners are very curious about what you just said about you know not being a fan of hers and um, and your oft quoted statement in your closing about you know not liking her most days. Can you just go into that your experience of her and um, how you've dealt with the aftermath of this trial and and all that stuff? Well, boy, that that, that is a big uh, big question. I guess um, I could probably go on for uh, an hour. But um, <laughs> <laughs> we'd hear Jim snoring in the background. At 10 minutes. <laughs> but um, l- let me let me say it as briefly as, as possible. I think a lot of people that are watching trials have the perception, have a couple perceptions that are more accurately characterized as misperceptions. Well, the audience misperception relates to uh, in terms of liking a client. A lot of people believe that um, an attorney has some kind of personal liking for the client. And that's not necessarily true as well. I mean, going back to one of the earlier questions, I'm assigned the case. I have no idea, little idea who this person is. That is part of my job. And and as as I should say, I'm a, a stern opponent of the death penalty, which is why I was doing that work. So I agree with um, you. In many ways, I was also a, um, I was mindful of the fact that regardless, my personal opinion of Miss Arias or, or her story or anything is irrelevant. It is the jury's that is relevant. But if I had any personal opinion um, that is at least parsed based on, on, on a overall objection to the death penalty, the idea that when compared to cases in Maricopa County, um, I don't believe that Miss Arias's situation was made her worthy of the death penalty and the choice to select the death penalty when compared to other cases. Now, the uh, to address the second part of your question, I think it was how I deal with the the fallout on a personal level. I mean, this was a almost a six year ordeal for me. It was over in April of 2015 after being assigned the case in August of 2009 and going through the trial and the retrial of the sentencing phase. It basically consumed my practice. I very little of any other clientele because I couldn't really dedicate myself to their cases uh, during these time periods. So in April 2015, I experienced something I'd never experienced before. On a professional level, I had nothing to do. Uh, (laughs) I had no cases. I was going for a run the next day, and I realized I did not have to run off to court. I did not have to run off to the office. It, it, It felt uneasy, but I made the choice to uh, try to do what I can because the case was all-consuming and I missed a lot of weekends and evenings with my wife and vacations and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I made the decision uh, to kind of take a little bit of a sabbatical. People had uh, asked me about my weight loss and so I decided, well, I would I would try to help people by giving uh, them a guide to how I lost the 75 plus pounds between the two trials and that I would take some time off. And then uh, in September of 2015, late August, early September, um, that is when I found the inflammation under my arm and eventually learned that I had stage three non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. 
So then I went from uh, battling to save Miss Arias's life on a worldwide stage to battling my own in a in a very private way until I went public with it in, in a couple months later. Yeah, well, Kirk, as you know, I can I can relate directly to that because um, I had the the same discovery back in two thousand four, uh, and ended up having a, a autologous bone marrow transplant, stem cell bone marrow transplant, uh, and and made it through. So I'm really happy that you made it through that fight and and that you're doing so well. Well, well, likewise, Jim. I know it's um, being a cancer survivor gives us probably a bond that we probably both neither rather not have. <laughs> but uh, but here we are, and, and it's 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 certainly been a life changing experience in terms of motivating me to really examine um, what I wanted to do with my life and how I wanted to uh, live the rest of my life uh, on this planet, however many days or years that might be. That's right. And I just want to know your secret, though. Yeah, you look amazing. You look very different from uh, the pictures that I saw. How? Yeah, but but how do you keep your hair? I mean, uh, I, I mean, mine didn't come back. What? What's up with that? Well, you know, what's so funny is, um, and I'll be brief. I sh I, sh I started shaving my head in law school, and after the first trial, and I lost all the weight. My my I finally gave in to my wife to stop shaving my head, and I I grew it out and lost the weight. But then when, when I started with cancer, I shaved my head because I decided I wanted to take it myself instead of letting cancer take my I hair. I did the same thing. The funny part was that it never really fell out. The nurse, about halfway through, she said, you never lost your hair, did you? And I said, no, not really. Wow. And uh, it, came back a little, it came back a little grayer, but it did come back. So I don't know what the secret is. I guess I got <laughs> lucky in that regard with my hair. All right, great. I, I, I recall it brings back a funny memory of the, the media fervor around the case because there was actually on Dr. Drew's show when he had a show uh, on HLN where they actually talked about my weight loss and my hair when the contemplation was whether or not I was using taxpayer money to uh, fund gastric bypass and um, hair implants. <laughs> that, that is an, an example of the uh, fervor around this case that that was was so surreal to me because we had such a tragedy yet somehow my hair and my weight loss was uh, of such uh, import anyway in, ter in terms of sort of the repercussions of the the case and so forth you decided to write a book about your interactions and your representation of jody arias what what was the reason that you wrote that book and when I when I learned I had cancer, I was I was doing a bit of writing myself for for therapeutic reasons because it was such a strain and stressful experience. And when the cancer diagnosis came in, I was basically advised that I had approximately a 70 percent chance of beating it. But only, you know, that 30 percent stood out as glaring to me because a 30 percent chance of not making it and, and staring your mortality in the face uh, tends to alter uh, one's viewpoint. I began to be mindful of the interview Miss Arias gave uh, between the sentencing phase and the penalty phase during the first trial, where she stated a lot of things about myself uh, that were not accurate. And I talk in the book a little bit about uh, the threat she made to ruin my career if I did not uh, comply with her wishes. And so I thought, uh, to make a long story short, uh, I thought that if I was going to de depart this planet, I was not going to do so without responding uh, to her words. And I believe to this day that my response to Miss Arias was ethically proper, given the things she said in that interview. However, the state bar did not see it that way. And rather than contest it, I chose to not accept a suspension and in fact request disbarment because I had no desire uh, after surviving cancer to go back and practice law. That's certainly an interesting twist of fate there because um, in a way Jody did manage to sort of end your legal career um, and uh, it's a shame because I think you were what you were doing was trying to save her life. It's kind of ironic isn't it? 
I guess now I'm to the point where I don't look back. I look forward and I think about my life coaching practice and all the lawyers that are overstressed and what that did to me. And I feel very called uh, to do all I can to help uh, in that regard. So that's that's my focus. And I feel uh, very comfortable in that mission uh, today. There's a question that's much broader, I guess, Kirk, just because you've gone through such a life changing experience. And, you know, I'm I'm glad you're still on the planet and, you know, to survive that, not just your experience at, at this trial, but to survive um, cancer, you know, con- congratulations. And I, I really mean that because you were looking, obviously, at potentially not being on this planet. And so I love the fact that you're just looking forward rather than backwards. But I wonder just to look backwards for a moment, of what advice would you give your younger self? Uh, wow. <laughs> you just dumped him, Laura. <laughs> I said it was slightly off, you know, broader and off topic, but I'm well, just curious. Given... Well, first of all, thank you for uh, your your kind words as a precursor to this question. And I I don't know that I really know the answer to that question because I'm not. I I think everything we do in our past builds us up to who we are now, and I I don't really think I would want to uh, change anything. I guess in one sense I would say I I wish I would have been more because I I first tried to withdraw from this case back in 2011 and the public defender's office had uh, had signed off on this. It would have been nice if that um, that happened. But so be it. I mean, like I say, I guess I just don't frame things that way, because who knows if that would have happened, some other attorney would have had the task fall on them. So if fate fate had it for me to um, be the person. So you wouldn't have, I guess, an extension of that is, would you have done anything differently, you know, in relation to this in particular then? Or would you have done it all the same if you can, if it was in your gift? Well, like I say, I, I, I don't tend to look look back and I consider, although this this is a tragedy, I think it would have been deepened if Miss Arias was sentenced to death. So ultimately, whatever we want to say about the Arias case is it from a legal perspective and a sentencing perspective, I think it was the appropriate outcome and it was in essence a victory. Kirk, I I have to, I would be remiss if I I didn't ask you some specific questions though about, you know, given the defense that you put forward and the facts of the case, the batter and domestic partner situation that you talk about, how does the fact that Jody dyed her hair, rented a car, got all these gas cans filled with gas so she can make the trip without stopping at a gas station, how does that all square with the situation in which she's actually uh, presenting herself as as the victim of domestic violence? Uh, all that was a precursor to the fateful day where she ended up killing Travis. Well, th- there's a lot involved in your in your question, but I, what I would do, first of all, is go back to this idea in terms of the defense. In a capital case in particular, uh, a client talks to experts and those things are disclosed to both sides. In that essence, the client tells the story. That becomes a matter of the client deciding this is what happened. So to answer your question, I'm not necessarily saying that it does. I'm saying that, you know, I, I laid out in my book the theory that I had that this was a spur of the moment uh, killing that happened, you know, that it was more akin to a manslaughter or a second degree murder than a first degree murder. That was my personal belief. Miss Arias had her story. Um, and I'll just say as from my point of view, and again, I wasn't involved in the case and I only could see the trial. I didn't see every part of the trial, but I think I watched a lot of her 18 days on the stand. Um, that was the most important for me in terms of a, from a behavioral perspective. But from my point of view, um, I do believe, although I don't believe in the death penalty, I do believe that those, all those behaviors I just mentioned, uh, changing her appearance, renting a car and, and getting gas cans uh, so that she can make the trip there and back without having to stop and, and make a record of her trip, I think all those are indicators that it wasn't a last minute decision, that there was certainly some premeditation. And whether or not she intended to kill him or scare the shit out of him, that was a premeditative, uh, those were premeditative moves that um, that I certainly, you know, as an investigator would have opined that way on had I been called to the stand. 
Well, well, let me speak to that if I could. I don't think that the definit the that the facts, some of the facts you're citing, are as definitive as maybe you believe them to be. Okay. Um, there was there was a car rental agent that testified that her hair was blonde. Yet there were other pictures demonstrative of the fact that it wasn't um, dying back and forth. So I think that was an issue. My guess would be that him being shown a driver's license picture that was blonde or induced the um, belief that she was blonde. We saw the pictures um, on the day of the killing that um, she had darker hair. Mm -hmm. Um, To speak to your other point, I think there are, I think the gas cans is one of the biggest red herrings in the case because she did buy them with a credit card. And if you were doing it in a covert nature, you wouldn't do that. The Doesn't other mean she issue, was the smartest criminal, but. <laughs> no, the, the, well, well, here's the thing that I think, and, and this is kind of what I laid out in my closing argument. And I'll just take the position uh, in essence that I took in my closing argument, again, putting my personal beliefs aside, Jim, um, you know, there is great deliberation and planning attributed to Miss Arias, but also at the same time, what we're saying is that there is also instances of, of vast stupidity, which may be true, but seems to me to be a little bit uh, contradictory. The other thing I would say to your point, Jim, in terms of all this is even if we were to accept the premise that she went to the house with the idea of committing this murder and bought the gas cans and the hair and all that stuff, even if I were to accept all of that, we have to still say that we have to account for those some 12 hours that they were together and her failure to commit that murder. One can go to someone's house, plan to commit a murder, not commit it, and not be guilty of any crime. So it could very well be the case that you are absolutely correct, but I would say that the amount of time she spent there um, is stands in, stands in contrast to the idea that this was a covert mission uh, with exact pre-planning that wasn't executed the moment that she walked into his home. Well, and I guess that would come down to what the plan was. And I will say, though, that I have in in my position as an FBI agent and uh, FBI profiler, I've come across literally thousands of cases in which somebody who was intelligent and I would I would put Jody Arias at the high end. I think I believe she was highly intelligent, yet she was not criminally experienced. Although you can think about things when you haven't committed crimes over and over and over again, during that time, your MO usually changes based on the things that go right and things that go wrong. So this being a first-time event for Jody Arias, I would not expect her to be criminally sophisticated or criminally experienced, and therefore certain things she may not... uh, she may not think about. So it's, it comes across as, as, as you said, as maybe stupidity or ignorance, but what it really is, is lack of experience in terms of committing crimes and, and what can actually become evidence. They think about some things because those are theoretically in their brain about what they have to do. But, you know, and if her plan was to lull him into a a sense of complacency, then maybe that does explain the 12 hours. But I don't know exactly where the gun was or or how it ended up coming out when it did. But clearly, we all know the result of that. And it's unfortunate, obviously, that, as you called it, this is a terrible tragedy because a young person, you know, Travis, was pretty brutally killed. And, and Jody Arias, who maybe she did have some mental issues, maybe she was untreated for certain things, and... Maybe she was going through a whole bunch. And again, her life uh, will be spent behind bars. So nobody wins in this at all. No, no ultimately, that is true. There, There is no winners. And that's, that's like I say, the ultimate tragedy. There's a lot of people that, that take joy in, in her demise and, and enjoy hating her. But I just think, you know, if we step back, the reason you hate her and the reason for her demise is because a beloved young man was killed. So I don't, I don't think there should be any joy taken in any of this. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? 
What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's what happens when you give Grammarly to your entire team. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. You hear that? Your dog knows. Spring is coming sooner than you think. But the warmer weather also means that fleas and ticks are coming back. Fleas are an itchy nuisance and can easily get into your home, furniture, and beds, which can be terrible. Ticks are even worse. They're hard to spot but can carry disease and get your dog really sick. PetMed's pharmacists connect directly with your vet to save you time and deliver the best flea and tick products for your pet. PetMeds offers low prices on all flea and tick meds, including Nexgard, Simperica, and more. Visit PetMeds.com and use promo code PODCAST to save 40% on your first auto ship order. That's PetMeds.com promo code PODCAST for 40% off your first auto ship order. The court finds the mitigation presented is not sufficiently substantial to call for leniency and that a natural life sentence is appropriate. It is ordered the defendant shall be incarcerated in the Department of Corrections for the rest of her natural life with no possibility of parole. I must be one of the few people on the planet who'd never heard of this case. I mean, I don't know what I was doing during those years. Maybe I was breastfeeding multiple children. I don't know what, but I never heard of it. And so it's been very fascinating to, in the lead up to this interview, to do all this research and learn about it about Jody, but also to learn about the victim, Travis Alexander. And I know that our listeners want to know when your second book is coming out, if there is one in the making. That is the question I get more often than not. Um, my first book I should mention, since we've been talking about my books, is uh, Trapped with Miss Arias. It is part one of three, just as a, as a precursor to your question, for those who don't understand. And in that book, I talked about writing two more books. At this point in time, I do not, um, I'm not prepared to make any announcements about any of that yet. But people can follow me on Twitter. I'm at, uh, Nermi, at Nermi Unchained. My website now is nermiunchained.com. Especially for those attorneys out there who might be feeling a little stressed, I'm going to have a book coming out, an, an e-book coming out related to some of the things I learned when fighting cancer and dealing with stress. But that will also be the source of uh, where any announcements come as well. They'll probably come through Twitter or be posted um, on my website. I just had a question um, about the letter that she wrote, the 12-page letter that she also wrote about, uh, as you know, you were trying to recuse yourself and didn't want to uh, be in the position that you were in. But I also just read this 12 page letter that she wrote asking for you to be withdrawn and for a new public defender. And I, I guess your book is the answer. Is that right to the points that she makes in that letter? Partial. And thank you for bringing that up because I didn't bring it up when I talked about her interviews. I also talked about uh, interviews she did between the sentencing phase and the, or excuse me, between the guilt phase and the sentencing phase of the first trial. And she also raised concerns of that nature in this 12 page. It was also a response to those things as well. And so what she was saying that for five months, you didn't talk to each other. Um, was, is that a, a true say? I mean, is that fact? Or is that a stretch in terms of, you know, why would she sort of put that in this 12 page letter? I'm just trying to understand her mindset. Right. Well, I, I don't want some of those the things are surrounding that and the record that was made is under seal. So I, I, I can't fully respond to that. But well, but I will say I will say, obviously, the judge ruled against her motion. 
And why do you think that was, Kirk? I mean, the judge, with both of you saying that you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to represent and, and be the, the public defender, she wanted you to withdraw. Can you say anything about the judge's decision? Why did they deny the change in representation? Well, I can say from a legal standpoint, um, a client uh, who is not hiring their own counsel is not entitled to counsel their own choosing, only competent counsel. The flip side of that being kind of goes back to what I said before, the fact that an attorney may or may not, their personal feelings towards their client is completely irrelevant. I, I could not go up and say, judge, you know what, I, I just I just don't like this guy. Um, I don't like his name. I don't like everything about him and just be withdrawn from the case. My duty is to advance the case and and represent the defendant, not like them. Right. So it's not it's not a legally operative fact whether or not I like Miss Arias. I guess, I mean, there, there was some um, suggestion that she wanted to represent herself. Is, is that right? She did for a period of time, mm-hmm. for uh, a couple of weeks, perhaps. I mean, that's, that seems, is that something that's quite rare, Jim? Just, you know, on your side of, you know, I, I rarely see that unless it's actually the other way around of someone who's trying to use power and control in a courtroom. But what's your view on that? Well, I mean, I think that there's a very common saying in the law among lawyers that anyone who represents themselves has a fool for a client. And that's because you certainly can't adequately represent yourself. I've heard it a number of times, particularly when you have sort of genius defendants in who are very um, controlling. They don't want to put their lives in the hands of other people. They believe they are the, the most brilliant and most capable. Uh, and there are a number of serial killers who have done that. For example, James DeBartolavin was a, was a serial killer who had a IQ in the 170s, and, and he represented himself. But he did get convicted. He did end up getting, getting put in jail forever. So uh, he may have had a fool for a client. But, um, Laura, I want to engage you a little bit with Kirk about the whole concept of, you know, this um, just in-depth or kind of frenzied media coverage and all the curiosity around Jody Arias. Um, and, and, Kirk, you mentioned hate. Uh, people hate her. Um, this is something that, Laura, you've talked about before, about how women in particular get aggressively hated in situations like this, or even when they're the victim of a crime. And we saw it, for example, in the Meredith Kircher case against Amanda Knox. And it was literally vilifying the female who was involved in the case. Um, In that particular case, somebody who was completely innocent who got involved in that case. But this hatred, do you think that had something to do with it? The fact that she was a woman uh, and, and she was so hated. It certainly seems that, you know, she, yes, she was hated. She was an attractive female or is an attractive female. Um, And those two things in and of themselves, you know, and it being a rare thing, as Kirk said, right from the start, a capital crime. She is uh, the defendant. You've got a male victim. And I have to say, you know, there's so little said about him in particular. The focus seems to be on her. And I know with our conversation, it's on her because we're talking with you, Kirk, and trying to understand what was going on. But Travis Alexander, you know, was the true victim here. But she, yes, talks about the hatred that she feels but from other people. But she also talks about a lot of love that she gets, too, from people. And she is on Twitter or somebody representing her is on Twitter. And I just looked at some of the there's the strange and interesting things that have gone on with this case. Much of it is driven by her. And so on the one hand, yes, I do think that she uh, was vilified right from the start without people knowing the true facts of what went on. But I think there was also another part to this that she really courted all of the public attention to, to the point that I haven't seen before actually, which is why, you know, I was asking you the the 48 hours and all the TV interviews that she's done from prison and and in between. I've certainly not seen uh, someone caught quite quite as much, whether male or female, 
media attention and and she certainly seems to thrive off of that that that's my own interpretation of what's going on so I think you know she is courting a lot of this media attention not not that people deserve to be hated um, but so much of it was driven by her was it not I will say you know I was having a conversation with some of someone the other day and talking about just the sexism element and putting the putting the courting in the media aside but um, I do think, for example, if you walk down the street and ask people who James Holmes was, uh, the case was pending at the same time Miss Arias's case, where more people would know Miss Arias than Mr. Holmes, who killed a lot more people and did a, a lot more damage. If we just talk about um, the amount of, of murders that took place and, mm-hmm. and uh, there could be numerous others with long criminal histories and... Um, you know, I've had other cases of domestic violence where the, the man killed the woman and the attention was not as significant. So putting the courting of the media aside, um, I think certainly um, that um, is an element there and the, her attractiveness as well. Because anyone, uh, Laura, I could say could court the media, but the media doesn't have to answer that call. And the media answered that call for specific reasons. And I think a lot of those reasons might have to do with her gender and or her perceived attractiveness. That's a very valid point. And I I certainly don't disagree with that. But this was also a trial that was largely based on a lot of sexual uh, imagery and content as well, wasn't it? And, And, you know, I don't disagree with the fact that I do feel that there is a... Uh, incongruence in the way that the media report when it is a female defendant in particular. Um, but I, I still feel that there were very specific things that she did that courted that attention. And, you know, she wore the Survivor t-shirt in court as well. And she's been selling art and her hair and all sorts of things that uh, continue to to get attention. And I think you know, my, my own interpretation is that she is somebody who really does like attention and not just likes attention, craves attention. And of course, some of the tools that she does have is that she is a very attractive uh, young woman and is articulate and, and intelligent as well. And so, yes, to your point, the media don't have to answer those calls, but she uh, is unusual. Um, whereas Amanda Knox, who we've covered before, and of course we've talked about, most people don't even know Meredith Kircher's name. Um, you know, there was a very significant interest in her, where the media, uh, almost certainly one paper in particular, even before the trial, was saying that she was guilty and naming her Foxy Noxy, and everyone wanted to believe she was guilty right from the start. Whereas conversely, everyone wanted to believe O.J. Simpson was innocent, and I, I think that's where you see this polarization and certainly how women are treated very differently. But she is quite different to to many other cases that I've seen. And of course, I I didn't work on it. So, you know, I have to immediately make that clear that I'm not in the detail of it as you were. And I think Jim certainly played close attention to it. But there's certainly some real anomalies with her and the way that she presents um, and certainly her change of accounts and things that I think courted uh, a lot of attention on her as well as the fact that the way she looked and was articulate and intelligent and really was trying to drive a lot of interest in in herself. Well, and, and I speak to, 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 to address part of what you say, I speak to in my book, the, the part one of Trapped with Mysterious, I speak to a cult-like uh, leader personality that she has because... Um, when we talk about courting in the media, you talk about people following her on Twitter and, and paying attention to her. Um, there is no mandate for people to do that. They choose to do that. And I think um, that personality of hers, that cult of personality, um, is part of what draws that in. And I try to explain that viewpoint a little bit in my book as well. And what's the name of the book again, Kirk? The name of the book is Trapped with Miss Arias from Getting the File to be uh, Being Ready for Trial. It kind of goes into the backstory. I talk about uh, getting the file. I talk about meeting Miss Arias, and I talk about some of the things 
that happened to the lead up uh, of the case, the change of counsel. A lot of people want to know why it took so long uh, to get to trial. So I kind of uh, outline all of that, my attempts to get off the case, et cetera, et cetera, and try to give people a bit of a background on capital representation in general and what the ultimate goal is of capital representation. Going back to something we said very early on, this idea that um, attorneys in this situation like their clients or agree with their stories or what they're saying, but really to kind of explain the job they have to do in the context of that and what the ultimate goal of that job is with the assumption and the reality that when there is a, a victim who has been killed um, viciously and um, somebody who's facing the death penalty where there can be really no true winner. All right. Well, our listeners can learn more of the details uh, from Kirk Nurmi's book, Trapped with Miss Arius, and we hope you pick it up and read it so you can find out everything that Kirk had to say on this topic. We thank you very much, Kirk, for coming today and speaking with us on Real Crime Profile and giving us your insights to this very interesting and disturbing and tragic case. Well, thank you, Jim, and and I appreciate the conversation with everyone. I guess I I neglected to say my book is available on Amazon. It is not in bookstores, but available exclusively on Amazon as well. So those those seeking more knowledge can can find it there. And like I say, I really appreciate the uh, the discourse today, and and the respectful nature that it was conducted in. Thank you. Thank so you, much. Kirk. We've appreciated you as well. And is there anything else that you want to say or want to make representation on that we haven't covered? Well, you know, I guess the one thing, and Laura, you would probably agree with me on this. Um, one of the other motivations, I guess, that, that went unstated for writing this book was the idea of looking beyond the sensational aspects of this case um, towards the tragedy, but also in, towards preventing of further tragedies and making this relationship and how it ended uh, illustrative of the fact that if people are not happy with each other or unhappy with how they're being treated in a relationship, uh, that they need to be able to distance themselves from those unhealthy relationships and these toxic bonds. Because what we've seen here play out on June 4th, 2008 was ultimately a manifestation of what could happen when people don't get away from each other. We see the things that he called her in the text messages, vice versa, how they were to each other. People in that situation, I hope, will take away from this case, not the sexual aspects of it, but that lesson that they need to get away into healthier relationships. I think okay. that's a good point, talking about healthy relationships, and we do cover it in, in other pods. And actually, it's a subject, Jim and Lisa, I want to return to um, and maybe bring someone like Gavin DeBecker on and, and talk a little bit more um, about that and, uh, you know, separation and, and so on and so forth. So um, I agree. So thank you very much, Kirk. I appreciate, certainly have appreciated talking with you. And there's so much more I could ask you. And I'm sure Jim and Lisa feel the same, but we're mindful of your time. So, so well, well, maybe we'll, do a, maybe we'll do a part two someday. Great. All right. Thank awesome. you so much, Kirk. All you right. Bet. Well, enjoy. All right. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Real Crime Profile. Hey, it's Lisa Z from RCP. Longtime Real Crime Profile listeners know that we are big fans of the podcast Truth and Justice, hosted by our good friend Bob Ruff. Through Truth and Justice, Bob has investigated the Adnan Syed case in season one, then moved on to work for the Innocence Project of Texas on four other cases in seasons two through four. Well, now Bob may be taking on the most complicated and controversial case yet as he investigates what is known as the West Memphis Three. Now, as our listeners know, the Real Crime Profile team covered this tragic case last year, but Bob is about to take it to a whole new level. This case known as the West Memphis Three has captured the attention of millions of people from around the world. To recap, on May 5th, 1993, Three eight-year-old boys took off riding on their bikes together in the quiet neighborhood in West Memphis, Arkansas. After not returning home for dinner, the search began for them around 6 p.m. The next day, around 1 p.m., the boys' bodies were discovered in a shallow drainage ditch, naked and badly beaten. 
Investigators at the time determined that the murders had satanic cult overtones, and within weeks, three teenage boys were arrested for the crime and later convicted. 18 years later, the three were set free, but only after being forced to plead guilty, causing them to live out the rest of their lives as convicted murderers and allowing the state to maintain that the case was closed. No justice for the victims or the wrongfully convicted. Well, our friends at Truth and Justice podcast hope to change that. Truth and Justice with Bob Ruff utilizes real-time crowdsourcing to solve cold cases. Listeners don't just listen, they actually participate in the investigations. With over 30 million downloads, the Truth and Justice audience is a powerful tool for solving the unsolvable. The host, Bob Ruff believes that through their unique crowdsourcing approach, they can finally find the truth and bring real justice to everyone involved in this tragic case. Truth and Justice is launching their reinvestigation into the West Memphis 3 case on November 5th. The series begins with episode 501. Check out the Truth and Justice podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, or your favorite podcast directory. Download episode 501, Truth and Justice, with Bob Ruff on November 5th to join in on the investigation. We wish our buddy Bob the best of luck in solving this controversial and very tragic case. The West Memphis Three is a case that has been picked over by literally millions of people from around the world. On May 6, 1993, the bodies of three eight-year-old boys were discovered in a shallow drainage ditch in the transient town of West Memphis, Arkansas. These were the days of the satanic panic era in the United States. The murder of these three little boys was so shocking and so grotesque that investigators believe that they were murdered as part of a satanic cult ritual. Three teenagers, underclassed and unpopular, were quickly targeted by police and arrested for the murders. The case drew international attention through a three-part documentary called Paradise Lost, in another documentary titled West of Memphis. There was even a Hollywood movie about the case, The Devil's Knot. 18 years after their arrest, the three teenagers, now grown men known as the West Memphis Three, were finally set free. Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miss Kelly, and Damian Eccles were forced to plead guilty in exchange for time served in order to avoid Damian Eccles' execution. Justice was never served in this case. The three live their lives today as convicted murderers. In the real killers of Stevie Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers has never been brought to justice. The Truth and Justice podcast, through a real-time crowdsourcing approach, hopes to finally change that. We are going back to ground zero to reinvestigate this case. We will attack the misconceptions, hear from new witnesses, reanalyze evidence, hear from real experts, and engage the hundreds of thousands of listeners with every skill set from around the world to dig out the truth and bring justice, real justice, to the forgotten three. Michael, Christopher, and Stevie. The Season 5 Journey of Truth and Justice will begin on November 5th. Download Episode 501 on iTunes, Audioboom, or your favorite podcast directory. Be a part of the investigation, and together, let's try to bring truth and justice to the West Memphis Three. like our podcast there are a few things that you can do you can take two minutes and go to apple podcast and leave us a five-star review you can also check out all real crime profile offers and promotion and our sponsors in our show notes another thing you can do is go over to facebook and like our facebook page and one last thing is please tell all your friends family and colleagues about us and spread the real crime profile word thank you so much for listening to us we really appreciate you
Real Crime Profile is produced and edited by Paul Francis Sullivan. Sound engineered by Terrell Parham. Music composed by Simba Zumba. Logo art by Jim Clementi. Real Crime Profile is produced by XG Productions and distributed by Wondery. For advice and support if you're experiencing stalking in the UK, you can contact Paladin National Stalking Advocacy Service on 0203 866 4107 or you can go on the website www.paladinservice.co.uk. If you're experiencing domestic violence, call the National Domestic Violence Helpline free phone 0800 2247. In the U.S., if you're experiencing domestic abuse and need advice, safety, shelter, or counseling, call Genesis, the 24-hour hotline, 214-946-4357, or go on their website, www.genesisshelter.org, or the domestic violence hotline on 800-799-7233. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Real Crime Profile ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The wait is over. So far, you're not losing. The only thing you're losing is my patience. Quickly, I see that. Bing! The queen of the courtroom is back. I didn't do anything. You wouldn't know the truth if it came up and slapped you in the face. I see he's not intimidated by anything. I can fix that. New cases. She wanted to fight me. Leave her alone. Okay, so, um... Not, this is not a so. This is a period. Classic Judy. Did you sleep with her? Yes, Your Honor. You married his cousin. His brother. That's not him. Yes, ma'am. I would make a beeline for the door. The Emmy Award-winning series returns. How did I know that? I have crystal ball in my head. It's an all-new season. It's streaming. You can say anything. <laughs> Judy Justice, only on Freebie.